is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Existential today uh, with me on the podcast is Joe Lumen, who um, I've been following actually on social media for some time, and I'm a huge fan of the work that she's doing with the team. Uh, they started a Instagram account recently or in the last four months called Do Better Church. And Joe, thank you so much for, for being here, for agreeing to take some time to talk to us about this, this process that you've uh, been engaged in. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am a big fan of your work, too. So this is oh, an honor. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. So listen, well, why don't you just start by just telling us, A, how you're doing? I mean, we're all <laughs> in a global pandemic. And I think the work you're doing is like, you know, really, it's, it may not seem like it on the surface, but it's like, you know, it's pretty emotionally taxing to be going up against an institution, you know. So how are you doing just personally, your family during this pandemic? Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, we're doing well. It's it's a lot. It's an adjustment. I have four children, and the oldest is eight. The youngest is 18 months. Mm. So, you know, I have young kids, and they are all home, and we've been home for eight months, and um, you know, trying to just get creative with them and keep them engaged and excited, and also they miss their fa- friends and their school and their mm-hmm. lives. So... Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been an adjustment, but we're doing well, thankfully. And and my husband is able to be home as well. So it's been the six of us home for eight months, spending all this time together, uh, which is taxing in itself for sure. But uh, but also really good. A lot of time that we wouldn't have had. Right. Um, so we we love that part. And then as far as my work. Um, it is it's a, it's very emotionally taxing. I have to take time away and I have to mm. look away a lot because unfortunately, especially because of, you know, the fact that I am a woman and I am an immigrant mm. and I am a woman of color, uh, people feel very emboldened to say a lot of harmful and mean mm. things to me. Mm. Um, so it's sometimes I just have to walk away and we had, we've had some threats and, you know, we had our address shared online, so we had to oh put cameras God. on our house, and um, I get horrific messages sometimes, and which is really funny. I'm holding the church accountable for not being abusive, and they abuse me, uh, <laughs> kind of proving my point. Exactly, you know. Exactly, yeah. Like, so you're you're getting threatened by like church people. Christians, yeah. Um, it's not necessarily like churches or church leaders, of course, but it's just Christians that feel very threatened by the things that I'm saying because I speak of the, you know, the marriage of Christianity with white supremacy. And mm. the moment that you start speaking about white supremacy um, it, it, as a system of oppression, people just feel very, very threatened by that. Uh, and they feel like I'm saying that their faith as a whole, Christianity as a whole, is white supremacy, which is not what I'm saying at all. I am a Christian myself. Uh, I am just holding us all accountable to watching how our faith has been co-opted and appropriated by systems of oppression for the last 1,700 years to harm and abuse and use people. And if we're not aware of that, we'll continue to do harm. Wow. Yeah, just the last 1,700 years. No big deal. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're big into the deconstruction space. And I often think about deconstruction from... Um, the standpoint of it's there was something constructed that you deconstructed 
What was your journey like? What was it like for you before you started on this journey of deconstruction and also, you say, decolonizing faith from white supremacy and the oppressive ways that have been around for 1,700 years? Yeah. Well, um, as I said, I am an immigrant, so I come from Colombia. Uh, I was born and raised there. I moved here when I was 24 years old. And um, obviously, Colombia is a colonized nation. Uh, It's, you know, it's called Colombia because of Columbus. So... Hmm. Uh, and hmm. Bogota, where I grew up, it, the name was Bacata um, by the indigenous people. So we, the indigenous people of Colombia. So we still have sort of the name, and most people don't know that. Uh, hmm. But a lot of the street names are names of colonizers. And a lot of the universities and a lot of the libraries are names of colonizers. And I wasn't aware of all these things. You know, we we grew up very immersed in um, Catholic uh, ideologies and Catholic culture, even Mm. people that are not Mm. Catholic because of Christian hegemony um, are being raised in Catholic culture and Catholic ideologies and um, narratives. So it was the same for me. And then my, my dad got saved, (laughs) Um, (laughs) whatever that means now for me. So my dad got saved and he became a Christian when he moved to the U S and then, you know, my family, we all became Christians after that. And I am a type of like person that is an all in or don't even bother kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went all in and I started reading my Bible and really getting so immersed into Christianity and understanding different theologians historically and, you know, mm-hmm. especially Protestant theologians. And mm-hmm. so I graduated college um, and then I moved to the U.S. to have an internship here in the U.S., at a church, and then it was a two-year internship, and then I got my master's degree in, in theology and ministry at Point Loma Nazarene University, and I got super involved in a church plant here in San Diego, and the church plant was a, it was, it was an urban church, really. We were planted right in downtown San Diego, and we talked about, you know, transforming the community, and, and, being a change in the community and really ensuring that our presence in the community was moving the entire community towards heaven on earth. And that was really cool in, um, the conversations were really cool in practice. That's not what was happening at all. And the more time that went on, the more that it's really not what was happening so much so that we ended up physically moving outside of downtown. Um, and now we were talking about just, you know, saving people and bringing people to church (laughs) and ensuring that they are coming to this church because if they come, then their life is better. And in the meantime, I'm reading all of these different theologies and theologians. And I started reading about, you know, due to school and other things and the discomfort that I had with the church, I started reading about liberation theology and I realized that's what I believe and this is not what we're doing, you know? And so I look at the money that's coming in and I start asking questions like, why are we buying lights and screens and what, you know, and in the meantime, I was a staff member getting paid $700 a month for full-time work. So we don't even care of, the ones that are inside of the church, those of us who are giving all of our time. I had two children at the time, $700 a month, working full-time, my husband working two full-time, getting paid, I think it was $2,100 for him a month. Mm. Mm. We don't even take care of us. We didn't have health insurance, no, nothing. And how are we talking about heaven on earth? How dare mm. we even have that conversation? Mm. But the more questions we ask, the more that we, you know, 
they weren't welcomed. The questions just weren't welcomed. So we, we recognized we just had to leave. So we did. We left and we started e even further diving into what does it mean What does it mean to just really hold these faith? Uh, what mm -hmm. does it mean to bring heaven on earth? What does it look like to believe the things that we believe? And though my deconstruction process had already begun with all the questions I was asking that weren't welcomed, being outside of the evangelical church allowed for me to ask them without fear and without... Um, you know, the ostracizing, because I had already been ostracized. There was nobody else to lose. I lost it all. Mm. Um, so I was able to ask more questions more freely. And really, I looked at my at my library. I, I talk about this. I, I looked at my library at home, and I have a lot of books, and I'm talking like 98% of them were white theologians. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so I spent two mm. years exclusively reading black indigenous brown people wow. talking about yeah. god and talking about theology and obviously all of these challenged every single notion of christianity and faith that i had uh, and so that was the process of deconstruction and then decolonizing which was the divesting from systems mm -hmm. of oppression that are so deeply married to our faith unfortunately because like i said it's been co-opted and appropriated by white supremacy supremacy before not necessarily white supremacy white supremacy later on in the 1600s and then patriarchy for always and capitalism as well mm. so so yeah it just it became then my world completely yeah you just named a three-headed monster that is it's it's at the same time this massive like kraken of a monster release the kraken that is threatening faith and spirituality um, the essence of it anyway but yet at the same time, those things are kind of covert and tasteless yeah. and smellless when you say patriarchy and supremacy. And the last one being capitalism, because it's not it's sometimes um, we don't pay enough attention to the impact that that has on especially the Christian faith. But on I think on faith in general of, mm -hmm. of being of remaining something that is helpful to people that is about people that is about justice that is about equality that is about inclusion um how have you seen capitalism like in your work of not only deconstructing yourself but helping people in their deconstruction and decolonization process how have you seen the role capitalism plays in all of that having a, a dramatic effect yeah I mean, honestly, if we talk just about the way in which the evangelical church views the work of the church in come, come and we will um, give you savior, salvation, you know, come and we will give you salvation. Wow. When in reality, well, what they are saying is come and be a part of these. Our numbers will grow. So our income will grow. We're talking mm. about capitalism here, mm. because if, if it weren't about, you know, accruing more people and, and garnering more people and gathering more people for us. But if it were really about heaven on earth, we wouldn't care so much about people coming and being here and belonging to our own small mm. little tribe and mm. calling you know themselves our same name. We would be talking about what does it look like to move towards equity and to move towards heaven for everybody, regardless of whether they agree with our theology or not. Mm right yeah. so and and we we push this the, just the notions of tithing um tithing is mandatory inside of evangelical churches it's it's mandatory and the, the teaching is you have to you know support the work that the lord is doing by giving to this church however if we look at tithing historically if we look at tithing inside of the church it was inside of the um christian and mm -hmm. jewish tradition mm -hmm. 
we are talking about ensuring that those who didn't have land were taken care of, that those who were taking care of the temple were taken care of, and those who were taking care of the temple were also ensuring that the presence of God was with them um, together, you know, that the mm. presence of God was with them together. Mm. And it's it, the tithing also was taking care of people. And in the New Testament, it was, hey, you bring everything so that we make sure there is no lack so that we make sure that everybody's taken care of. And we're talking about the notions of the Jubilee where, you know, we, we the, there was like I'll, debt and there was also debt canceling. Like I'll take care of you and you can work for me because you don't have enough. So I'll ensure that you're taken care of. But then we're going to cancel that debt after some years and you don't mm. have to work for me anymore. All of those ideologies don't exist in the church anymore. It's come mm. and work and do and get saved and claim our own tribe so that you can belong. But at mm. the same time, we are not ensuring that the people that are in our immediate community are taken care of. Um, you know, and we talk about then the, the celebrity culture that you don't have to be a celebrity pastor to participate in celebrity culture. Mm. Um, but just the ideology of there is hierarchical levels of seeing God. So those who are closer, those who are clergy or those who are leaders are closer to God. That is capitalistic mentality in itself mm. because they give more because they spend more time reading uh, when people have issues when, or when they are going through life, you know life yeah. which is yeah. hard have you read enough have you prayed enough as though our relationship with god and divinity and goodness and faith and um you know healing and wholeness is predicated on how much time we spend reading the bible or how much time we give to a church that's transactional um wow. that's transactional so capital wow. notions of capitalism are all throughout the narratives of the evangelical church um the, the idea that and i was told this american exceptionalism that america is a unique country because it's a christian nation um and th because of that it's a developed nation that is an example for all of for all nations we're talking about capitalism there you know yeah, uh, and ignoring the fact that it was also a place that killed and murdered and enslaved and harmed mm -hmm. um you know mm -hmm. yeah so i think that God. notions of capitalism are so deeply sown into into the theology of evangelicalism and protestantism uh but it, like you said it's covert it's not obvious yeah. so yeah. we have to dig into what's the what's the the hidden motivations the things that we are not willing to admit to ourselves that our faith has taught us about our really our transactional relationship with divinity that we have to mm -hmm. walk away from there's so much to what you just said i'm like i'm like I'm trying to like think and and pose the next question but then i'm like oh my gosh you said something else like when you talked about the you don't have to be a celebrity to mm -hmm. participate in celebrity culture i mm -hmm. i so want you to talk more about that especially within the context of what we see happening with like pastors and church leaders like what do you mean when you say you don't have to be a celebrity to participate in that culture we have created and we have allowed to create hierarchical systems inside of the church and this comes from always right so as mm -hmm. much as the protestant church has been really critical of the of the um catholic church and their hierarchical systems and having a pope that is the head of the church and then everybody the bishops and everybody underneath that the protestant church is no different it just has a lot less um 
perhaps accountability even, mm. and a, a lot less um, training mm. as well. Mm. Um, so what that what that looks like is we've created first first class and second class citizens of God, first class and second class citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and first class citizens are clergy who are supposed to hear more from God, have closer relationship to God, have a have a greater and deeper revelation of God, and then second class citizens are lady who are supposed to be under. The, the teaching and the revelation of these first-class citizens. But if we if we look at what the Bible really says, and if we look at, I, I think, at the intent of Jesus, it was, you are the Christ. It is with you, mm. and the Holy Spirit belongs to you. And you don't need intermediaries anymore. Um, you don't need anybody to come between you and divinity. Um, so we create celebrity culture by saying, it is them who have the revelation of God. It is them who are closer to God. Instead of recognizing that the invitation of the church should be, how can I help you recognize that divinity is within you and you have access completely without us? Mm -hmm. uh, and that the church should invite you to be able to enter into everything that it means to be the image of God in the world uh, mm -hmm. and then transform your immediate community, transform your life first and then your immediate community because where you step foot is where divinity is. Yeah, That's it. You, you don't need anybody else to give you that permission or anybody else to give you that, you know? Wow, my whole so body in, in is sense. chilled right now. Like I have, <laughs> I have chills when you talked about you are the Christ. That mm -hmm. like that that you don't need intermediaries. That like this idea that Jesus left so that there could be no more need for this one embodiment of where God is, but that God could be everywhere yeah. all the time, which yeah. God always was. We just needed, we just didn't understand that as human beings. Like, so you mentioned, you said this other word that I feel it, it sort of encompasses your work and you said accountability. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Because what I watch you doing online is, 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 is what some people who are, uh, again, supporting the celebrity hierarchy, white supremacist, uh, patriarchal way of doing church would say is sour grapes because they're not accustomed to seeing people say, "Hey, you with the you know with the the skinny jeans and the, and the and the tattoos and the large following, what you said or what you did is harmful." People aren't used to that. So that when they see people doing it, they're like, "Oh my gosh, why are you doing that?" Like you hold pastors and very large churches, people with very large followings accountable. Yeah. What drives that energy for you, for you to be a person who says, I know that this is not what people do usually. I know you have a large following. I know that people are going to clap back at me, but I feel this work is important. Yeah. Harm. Um, mm. I, you know, my, the, 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 if I may say it in a, in the, the image that comes in my head, it's I, I remember being in a church one day and the pastor said something so deeply harmful. Um, and, you know, he was talking about the most, he said exactly these were his words. He said, the most important thing that you will do for the kingdom of God is the service that you do inside of this church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there as a mom, uh, as a person that's meeting with people all the time, as a person that was really deeply involved in my kids' school, thinking, actually, the least important thing that I do is what I do here on Sundays. And, yes. and what you're doing is asking people to come and find their identity and find their worth 
in what they do at your church instead of recognizing and realizing that their worth is intrinsic and that their existence alone is the most important thing. Existing in the world as themselves is the most important thing they can do for the kingdom of God. You know, dismantling the conditionings that they have been put into and healing from the trauma of white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and be, be belonging to themselves first so that they can belong to the to the work that God is doing through them. That's the most important. But coming here and serving coffee on a Sunday morning is actually quite meaningless. It means nothing, you know? Like, you're no different than the barista at Starbucks. And sure, thank you, we're all caffeinated, but that's not the work of the kingdom. So, wow. and I was, I was sitting there and I started having a panic attack because in my, I have, like, I closed my eyes and I could see people with shackles you know, being enslaved to this notion that if you just do these things, if you just keep working for us for free, because that's free labor, if we talk, mm -hmm. you know, if we're going to be mm -hmm. honest, mm -hmm. if you just keep following these rules, then you're accepted by God. And in the meantime, divinity screams, but you're accepted already. Mm -hmm. You know, all, we, all I want you to do is to belong to yourself, to heal. Mm -hmm. And so my heart broke and, and it had been breaking for a long time, but it keeps on breaking as I see people be harmed and abused and be so deeply removed from their own selves. You know, it's the mm -hmm. it's the disembodiment that mm. you are going to be fine so long as you pray you are going to be fine so long as you do these certain things and in the meantime we're not talking about the underlying trauma that causes people to think that they have to perform to belong that mm. they have to that you know that causes us to allow a lot of abuse because belonging is being dangled it's the carrot that is dangled and why do we need that belonging so badly and the trauma that's underneath that and as long as churches are not willing to address that they will continue to use that carrot dangle the carrot and abuse people mm. for it mm. so i it is in my, my theory is churches will never push toxic churches let me be very clear because not all churches are toxic but toxic right. churches with toxic theology will continue to push for unhealthy behaviors in people because when people heal, they walk away from unhealthy spaces. Oh, my God. So I hold them accountable and I scream at them, not so much for them because it's too hard to walk away when you have that much power. But the only way to take away power from them is to help people name you're being abused inside of this church. And if you walk away, you'll take away power from them and they will be pressured to address how they are being harmful. Because money and power wow. is the only thing that will stop them from, that will actually stop them to look at what they wow. are doing. When people heal, they walk away from unhealthy spaces. Like that's something that if you follow us on Instagram, that is a quote you will see uh, on that Instagram account. That is such a beautiful statement and such a truth that is liberating for mm -hmm. any person who's been harmed by, as you describe it, toxic uh, religion, toxic um, masculinity, toxic uh, theology, like that is such a liberating statement, but it's also a very threatening statement to anybody who is grasping for or trying to hold on to the power that they have yeah. over people. Now, that's, wow, that is a, that is a jewel of a statement. Thank you so much for sharing that gift with us. That's Gosh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, now you also, you name names, which I think is really cool. Like, I mean, <laughs> I think it, <laughs> you know, I, I was just watching, I just saw um, one of your more recent posts on Instagram, uh, and I think it was Chad Beach. Mm -hmm. And and so, I've, you know, I've seen Chad Beach. I've seen a lot of Bethel, which, I mean, 
I won't even go into that's a whole conversation for another day. Um, but I what I what I frequently see is that I and I kind of chuckle when I see it because it's almost predictable now. Is so and so blocked us? But <laughs> every time. <laughs> Why, like, why do you think they're blocking you? Do they, is there any, is there ever any conversation about like, hey, we're going to block you? Or is it just like one minute you're speaking and next thing you know, you're blocked? No, we always just blocked. Uh, and I, this all started with my own account, you know, not do better, but Joe Luman. And they all were just yeah. blocking me in mass. Um, I was calling them out. It, it, the calling them out was had always been. But as my account started growing, they were paying more attention. And, you know, before they wouldn't mm. block me, just delete my, my comments because it didn't matter. But mm. as my account started growing, they started blocking me altogether. Um, and then I started calling them out during the protest the black lives matter protest because all of them were posting you know black squares and all of them were talking about like yes black life matters uh and then their theology at the same time is aligned with white supremacy so as as i was holding them accountable to that and saying like Please do explain to me how you can hold to white supremacist theology and at the same time put a black square because this feels very much like optical <laughs> allyship. So are you going to address the white supremacy theology that is underneath everything of wow. your church? So they were blocking me more and more. One pastor of hundreds, I'm talking here, I mean, hundreds is an exaggeration, probably a few dozen mm-hmm. um, that I was talking to. One pastor reached out and had a conversation with me and he asked for resources. He asked if he could meet with me and he said he would pay for my time. Uh, one. And that was mm-hmm. Carl Lentz. He was the mm-hmm. only pastor that leaned in and he, he first he was super defensive and he said, no, I think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he ended up because he had a he had the video. He had George Floyd's video and I told him to delete it. I said, can you just please remove it? Just remove it. Listen to the community. Remove it. And these are the reasons why. And he first didn't decided not to. And then somebody from his church was also calling him out and he was really rude to her. And he met with her. He talked to her and it was, it was an OK conversation. You know, we can expect perfection from people mm-hmm. that have not leaned in ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did. He leaned in, he, he talked to us, and he then asked me for resources, and um, I think he was, I, I think he is still, you know, in spite of everything that's going on in his life, mm-hmm. I think he is still trying to learn and trying to understand. But like I said, so long as um, they are not willing to put down power, to, mm-hmm. to lay down power, especially if they, we're talking about cis, hetero, white men they hold power and if they are not willing to lay down power and start amplifying the voices of those who have been oppressed by white supremacy and therefore by them um then they are going to read all the books and they are going to lean into all the conversations and start doing better but not fully do better you know, yeah, so they, sure. they will find new ways to continue to center themselves. And for and sure. we've talked about this, but no, they usually just block and they don't want to have the conversation. <laughs> and it's because of the culture of we are first class citizens. How dare you hold me accountable? Mm. I know better than you. Mm. You know, it's this notion of I know better than you. You have nothing to teach me. There is nothing I could learn from you. Um, therefore, I'm just going to block you because you don't get it. And I do. That's amazing. It's, it, to me, it speaks to what I've said so many times about the the new nature of how the Christian faith is expressed. It used to be that marginalized communities, 
the, the Jewish community, people who knew what it was to be in captivity, knew what it was to be enslaved, knew what it was to be an insignificant blip on the, imper the imperial radar and to be mowed down by empire after empire, but still hold this deeply spiritual tradition mm -hmm. of believing and practicing things that like enrich their lives with the divine and the yeah. planet and each other. They used to be the ones who, who would say, hey, there's a better way of being. Yeah. And that's how we got the gospel. That's how we got the all of the books that became canon and all the books that weren't that are still so richly divine. Now what we have is people with power, like white men who are at the top of the food chain, if you will, that get to make all the rules, decipher all the doctrine, tell us what the Bible says, what the Bible doesn't say, and then you, someone like you shows up, an, an immigrant from, you know, like who's who knows what it is, especially in the United States, to be the other. Yeah. Who's also reading her ass off to like to 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 know some things, and here I am as a white man going, nah, I'll pass on anything that you have to say. Like uh, I am blown away by that reality and i'm so thankful that you just named that and you 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 mentioned carl lynch and i'd be remiss if we didn't talk about that just a little bit we i don't know if everyone knows even who he is but anybody who's you know been around church for a while or, or you know follows any sort of church stuff knows that carl lynch this mega church justin bieber's pastor was recently caught i mean metaphorically and i guess literally with his pants down and um you talk about celebrity culture uh, and i don't you know i don't expect you to name this like a scientist, but just because of the work that you're doing, how do you think celebrity culture contributes to what happened with Carl and ultimately what how Hillsong decided to handle it and all those sorts of things? Um, instead of, you know, celebrity culture, the higher up you are in the hierarchy, the higher up you are in the food chain, because it's really just a food chain, mm. um, the least accountability you have. Mm. Carl was quite up. You know, mm -hmm. he was quite up mm -hmm. and it's, it's lovely. It's great to have the accolades and the claps of the people. And also it's lovely. It feels good, especially for unhealed people and for traumatized people, which mm -hmm. is all of us, all yeah. of us have trauma. Yes. Yes. Um, and those of us who have not addressed it, it feels good to have the claps of the people. So you continue to move up this hierarchy and the further up you are, the least accountability you will receive uh, because what matters is more the entertainment because that's what it is. It's just entertainment. The entertainment that you provide for the people than your character or your well-being. So Carl is both a participant in this system and also a victim of the system. Mm. He was a he was a puppet, right? Like perform for us, Carl, so we can clap for you. Your ego is fed by those claps, but the moment the moment that because of your unhealed behavior, um, you know, you start coping with all of this trauma in ways that are we don't accept, which we shouldn't accept, then we're going to hold you accountable to to a standard that we don't hold everybody else accountable, right? Uh, because people inside of Hillsong Church have been taken out of leadership for having sex inside of uh, a consensual relationship just because they aren't married. Mm. But 
<laughs> Carl was allowed to stay and stay and stay wow. and stay and stay, wow. even though people knew that he was, you know, struggling and people knew mm-hmm. that things were going on and people knew that there were, um, that there was deception and that there was mm-hmm. abuse. So a lot mm-hmm. of things he, there were so, there was so much abuse that was allowed inside of Hillsong, New York, that was overlooked and covered up that he continues to move further and further and tries things that are more and more harmful all mm. the way to lying to his wife and lying to his children and starting a relationship mm. with a Muslim woman and tokenizing her and exoticizing her the way that he spoke about her. Mm. Uh, because he is allowed, you know, when you don't have accountability, you think you can do anything. And and then here we have to talk about how this was a culture created by Hillsong. It's a culture created by Brian Houston. It's a culture created that the higher up you are inside of Hillsong, the least accountability you have, the least that you get to lean in, the more that people idolize you and clap for you and, and in a way put you in, a, in almost as a second god. It's like their mm-hmm. words are not mm-hmm. to be, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. even looked at. Like it's truth yeah. and it's final. And so Brian Houston creates this culture and it's refusing to take accountability for the fact that he set Carl up to fail. He was a 21-year-old kid thrown into ministry um, who was thrown into purity culture um, and then mm-hmm. thrown into celebrity culture that grew. You know, it became now worldwide celebrity because of Justin Bieber. And we don't give them the tools necessary to be able to handle that with that. We, we talk about then, you know, hustle culture and you have to do more and be working all the time. And he has no time for self-care and mm-hmm. he doesn't model self-care well, because how could he if the church is always talking about do more and be more and reach more and touch more and bring more people and, you know, to be the greatest and the most. And then the moment that Carl, you know, fails publicly, because mm-hmm. this was just a public fail, mm-hmm. um, the church removes their hands, throws mm-hmm. them to the wolves, and says, mm-hmm. well, we have to remove our hands because that's what accountability looks like. Mm-mm. No, accountability looks like, what was the part that we played in this? Yes. You know, should be sitting down and saying, what was the part that we played, and how can we ensure that every single person inside of our organization that is my giant... Uh, never sees themselves in the shoes that Carl had to see himself and how can we support him and his wife and what does it look like to show up for them you know mm-hmm. and what does it look yes. like to to tear down the systems that we have created that created the monster that is the celebrity culture but yeah. to do that it means they all have to lay down their power and they won't so it's easier to just throw Carl to the wolves mm. Wow. Now, now you, we've talked a, a good amount about like the, the folks at the top of the food chain. Before we hit record on this podcast, you were talking about the almost 600 stories of people who have been traumatized by their experience with church. Uh, you know, you don't, of course, we don't want to share all of their stories or, you know, any of their details. But I mean, can you talk about those stories, the impact they yeah. had on you. Um, what are some of the things that people are saying? What are the, some, some of the common threads amongst those 600 stories? Uh, probably more than that by now. Like, yeah. what, what? Talk about those stories a little bit. Um, well, I spent long nights just crying 
receiving stories in my personal inbox before I started, you know, the, the separate account Do Better Church. Mm-hmm. Um, just sitting there crying, reading stories of sexual abuse and physical abuse and financial abuse, um, reading stories of people that gave 20 and 30 years to churches. And the moment that they said, perhaps LGBTQ people are divine, they were ostracized, they were shut mm-hmm. down, like nobody wanted to talk to them. They lost all their relationships, their time, their work, everything was gone. And which was my experience too, uh, and the, the the isolation, the being I I called it I would call it differently now. But when we first left, I would call it all the time. We are the lepers, you know, the mm-hmm. lepers of of the mm-hmm. church where nobody wants to touch us. And in the meantime, Jesus keeps moving towards us. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are the lepers. I was at Target one day and I saw a member of the church that I used to go to, and I said hi. I was happy to see him. We were really close when we were inside of the church. He ran away from me. Ran away from me. Wow. The, the fear of, of talking to me, of just being in my presence, you know, that nobody mm. wants to know. People wouldn't take pictures with me and post them on their social media because nobody should know that I'm with you and I don't want to get in trouble. And when mm. I would hear those things, I'd be like, then we're not friends. Like, yes. I. Yes. What is this? You know, and, and and this happened to people over and over and over again, and they lost all their relationships, and they were ostracized and treated like lepers. Nobody wants to touch you. You are the, one, the untouchable ones, the untouchable. Mm. And, you know, I, without asking for a call out, without asking people to share their stories, after I started Dubai Church and I realized there needs to be a space for people to tell their stories. And then a, a group of, a team of magnificent individuals is helping me with that, and we're working together. Um, we, we've never put a call out and we have 600 stories. I cannot mm. even imagine how many stories we get. We said, hey, would you share your story yeah. with us? Yeah. We don't. People just see the stories and then they share them. They share their own. And the, the amount of psychological and emotional abuse, the you don't know what you're doing, you know, the you need to pray more, the toxic positivity, the spiritual bypassing, the don't take your meds because <laughs> the, that's not faith. Oh, my gosh. Um, The amount of if you don't tithe, then you don't belong to this, even though they are saying, like, I don't have enough to pay my my rent. They are like, tithe, and then God will bless you. Mm. Um, You know, that kind of abuse and that kind of not showing up for people and just pushing them to the brinks of of absolute despair, really. Mm. Um, People that are already traumatized, already being harmed, already hurting, and then this toxic theology is pushing them is pushing them further and further. Uh, and people think like, well, they, and this is the thing, you know, they are coming to church, so they are better because church becomes then an acceptable coping mechanism. Mm. Uh, but that's all it is. It's a coping mechanism for trauma. Eventually, it mm. catches up to you. Yeah. And eventually, it bubbles up like any other coping mechanism that is unhealthy. You know, eventually you drink enough to where you harm yourself or somebody else. Eventually you do enough drugs to where you harm yourself or somebody else. And eventually church becomes that much so harmful that you end up harming yourself or somebody else. And yeah. so these stories are constantly stories of disembodiment, of you don't know what you're doing. We know better for you, of removing agency from people of, you know, of, of yeah. putting themselves as gatekeepers of divinity. Like, you will mm. not have access to divinity unless I give you that access. And mm. they don't say that overtly, but that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they are just heartbreaking stories to read and yeah. heartbreaking realities of people that are going to live with the repercussions of this toxic theology for a very long time. 
Wow. You, you know, you said something earlier. You kept using a phrase earlier, and I was going to ask you about it then, but I, I thought better of it and wanted to wait till you had talked some more. Um, and I hear this term a lot. I know there's probably people listening to the podcast who aren't church folks. They aren't Christians. They're just listening. And this term kingdom of God is used a lot, right? And it's used sometimes by uh, cisgendered white men to divert from any conversation about patriarchy or white supremacy. It's like, let's just talk about the kingdom of God, right? Right. When you say kingdom of God, um, I, wanna, I want you to talk about what you mean. And because I, to be honest, sometimes struggle with that language because I'm like, I, is there another way of describing it fits in our day and age? But we yeah. haven't found anything yet. Um, but as you're talking, you're talking about it. So I just wanted to hear you name. When you say kingdom of God, what are you talking about? Yeah. I, I look at the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven, right? It's the, it's one and the same. Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are one and the same. And we, when we talk about heaven, you have to look at what Jesus was pushing for and what Revelation even talks about. You know, Revelation 22 talks about a place where there are no tears and there is no suffering. There's pain, but no suffering. And there is a difference. Pain is, pain is an emotion that we feel or something that we feel that leads us to what's wrong and what we have to fix. Suffering is unaddressed pain. Um, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is a place of no suffering, but but properly addressed pain. The mm. kingdom of heaven is a place of no tears, unnecessary tears. The kingdom of heaven is a place where everybody is well, where everybody is where their basic needs are met, where people are valued, where we are dismantling systems of oppression that are harming people quite literally, like physically and, you know, literally in actual ways, but also emotionally and, you know, psychological trauma. The kingdom of God is the place where we get to exist and belong and we, there is equity and fairness, and we get to expand truly. Uh, when when I talk about the Christ and being embodied, like divinity embodied in every single one of us, the kingdom of God is a space and a place where everybody feels free and safe enough to be divinity embodied, where they don't feel the need to edit themselves or fit themselves into boxes so that they can belong or so that they can be allowed to exist. But instead, they get to expand and their contribution to the community is in being themselves fully and bringing that piece of divinity that they hold within them to the community as a whole so that together we have a wider, more clear vision of what divinity looks like and how each one of us holds that divinity. So when I talk about the kingdom of heaven, I'm talking about the utopia that we believe cannot, that you know, most people call it utopia, but I believe it's possible. Mm-hmm. I do. And, and the reason I, I have to believe it's possible, it's because if it's not possible, then what's the purpose of our, our time here? You know, I, I have to believe it's possible and I have to move towards that. Will I see it? Probably not. But will I ensure that I leave behind um, a world that is closer to heaven for my descendants? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. my goal. That's mm-hmm. the, all, the, the entire legacy that I want to leave behind is a world that is closer to heaven for my descendants. Mm-hmm. That's the legacy I want to leave behind. I may, not leave, I may not leave a dime for them. I don't know. I may not leave a house. I may not leave, you know. But I will live a world that is closer to heaven, and they will be treated with more equity, respect, and honor than I was treated. Yes. So yes. that, that to me, is the kingdom. When I talk about the kingdom of heaven, but like you, I struggle with the language. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Well, but, but the language, just that was a poem that you just recited for mm-hmm. us. And, and like the, God, I swear, I hope, I, I just hope somebody right now is listening to this podcast and 
heard that description and saw yourself in it, and maybe for the first time saw yourself included in like the story that the divine has been telling since the creation of the world that is not limited to what religious background you subscribe to or, or what your sexual or orientation is or what your, you know, what gender you, you, you lean into. Like none of those things matter. And your picture of the kingdom is so, so beautiful. And I also love the, the leaving something for your descendants because so many of the disembodied ideas about spirituality and Christianity and God means I don't care about the planet, yeah. which also means I don't care about my descendants. Right. I only care about getting into heaven. I don't right. care about anything else. And the second thing that, as you were talking, that I, I, I caught and wanted to sort of say out loud um, is that I don't think any of us get to see the full, the fullness of the kingdom of God in this lifetime, if there's another one after this one, great, we get to see it. But I, I think what we do get, though, are like glimpses. Yeah. I think we get moments of them, right? I think we get these like small snippets of, oh, that's what it would look like if yeah. the creator were in charge yeah. of everything, right? Like, and if Because if we see it, then we don't get to participate in creating it. And mm. I, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are my favorite chapters of the whole Bible. And when, he, when God is talking to Adam and Eve, uh, and to me, all is allegory. All of it is mm -hmm. allegory. Yeah. And he, he's talking to them. You know, this divinity is talking to them and says, you get to finish creation. Uh, mm -hmm. And finishing creation is finishing the kingdom of heaven together. We work together. But in that work, there is rest. So the seventh day doesn't have a, it doesn't have a night and a morning. It's the seventh day. The seventh day is eternal. That was the intent of creation. That was the intent of the kingdom of heaven. A place where we get to work together to create this beautiful, incredible place. And we rest in it, the rest, the being able to rest. So the kingdom of heaven includes the doing the work, and the work includes rest. The work is rest. You know, mm -hmm. we work from rest. We don't work from desperation on, or wanting to survive or survival. We don't work from survival. We work from rest. Part of our work is resting. Mm -hmm. And and so we, we won't see it because then we don't get to participate in it either. But we do see glimpses and then we get what you said was beautiful. I hope people also stop for a minute and imagine it. You know, imagine and see themselves in it because we've been so bogged down by systems of oppression. We've been so pushed down by systems of oppression that we forget that the most important thing to be able to move towards the kingdom of heaven is to imagine it. Mm. To just imagine that it's possible and resist every single iteration of life that tells us it's not possible, you know? This has been just like a, a fire hose of goodness. Thank you so much, Joe. I, I, am, I am blessed, inspired. I feel like I've gotten such a gift by being able to sit here and talk to you for this last 45 minutes. Um, it's, gosh, it's been so good. Thank you so much for um, your willingness to put yourself out there um, to be an advocate for people, uh, to like contend for a better world. Like you're literally doing that on a daily basis and, and the image you have of it and that you're reaching for it and pressing for it every day is just, I, I feel very grateful to be, um, in community with you for Thank sure. Thank you.
Thank yeah. you so much. We can we can do this together. We can. I believe it. Absolutely. Well, folks, that was um, my friend Joe, and I am so glad that you got a chance to listen to her thoughts and ideas, and hopefully you were able to lean in. I'd like to thank all of you who are part of the Patreon community. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time. Thank you.